name is Justin Dean. This is the Sacred City Life podcast, and I'm here with a couple of my uh, favorite guests here, and uh, that is Richard Plass and James Cofield. Yeah, good and to be with you. Richard, it's good. This, So I'm just going to throw this out there right away. I, yeah. I know Richard a whole lot better than I know Jim, yeah. um, and, but I, I've, read, I've read the book. I read the book probably a couple years ago. Yes. Um, I read it on a, on a solitude. I had to take a solitude day. And I was out in the woods, and I read this book in, in one sitting. Hmm. And I said, I, I need to get with these guys. And I called, I don't even remember who now, and said, and he said, oh, I, I know these guys. You, you can get these guys. And, I, and I'm like, all right. And he's like, I just call them the, pa- the pastor whisperers. And I'm like, <laughs> okay, well, I need a pastor whisperer because well, I was in a bad yeah, spot. Yeah, we were pastors for 25 years, so yeah, I kind of get it a little bit. Awesome. And so... Uh, these, they're here to, today and tomorrow at Sacred City Church yeah. uh, doing a conference. You guys want to say a little bit about just the, what you're planning to do today and tomorrow? Yeah, well, we are, we're going to be meeting with folks from the church, and we're going to be presenting a particular profile that helps with self-clarity. It's called the Enneagram. And as, when we present this profile, we weave in there principles for healthy relationships because the book is about the relational soul. So it's kind of an it's kind of a way by which you can grow in your self-understanding and you can see how aspects of who you are affect and influence the way you go about doing relationships. Mm. One of the reasons we like this profile is um it it helps you uh it reveals kind of which of the nine gifts from God you identify with most. And then it says, well, According to God's common grace and redemptive grace, you're, here's how you're using those gifts. And then it also has a third category of just uh, what's the sand, what's the vulnerability, what's the potential sand in the relational gears. Based on each gift is a is a, has wonderful blessings, but it also has challenges. And um, we probably spend a little bit more time on the challenges. Uh, than the gifting, because giftings never get in the way relationally. It's just kind of, why do I keep repeating the same stuff? Or why do we keep repeating the same stuff? Yeah. yeah. And um, what's what's underneath that? What's behind that? So mm-hmm. that's our goal, to try to get that out in the open so that people can bring that to the presence of the Lord in mm-hmm. prayer and move forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know our people are really excited. We've, we've got, I think, just over 120 people that have taken the Enneagram uh, profile, and they're coming yep. uh, coming to tonight for this. Mm-hmm. the The test was, I mean, I've taken Myers Briggs and all these different yep. things, and the test was so fascinating. You know, the, just the weirdest test. Of, <laughs> well, I can't I can't yeah. get past yeah. the one word sparkle, like <laughs> sparkle. Well, you it know? brings like, clarity pretty quickly because it scores you on the nine styles, and it gives you a numerical assessment from zero to a hundred in these nine giftings from God, whether you're a servant or whether you're the effective, efficient person or whether the original creative person, it goes through these nine styles. And then it gives you a numerical assessment of if you're using this gift in a life-giving way and how strong is that gift within you in a life-giving way. But as Jim mentioned, it also is going to assess the strength of the sand in the gears. Mm -hmm. And it's just helpful for people to see, oh, 
this this may be what's creating relational snags for me. Yeah. Because we become habitual creatures. You know, we repeat things. Um, it's like the Yogi Bear statement. It's like deja vu all over again. You right. know, we, we revisit things again and again and again. And the Enneagram kind of helps us see a way by which we can get a handle on some of these aspects of how we relate and maybe have a clarity to do something about them. Yeah, it's been fascinating for me. Like I said, very strange test. One word, yeah. sparkle. You like, uh, you like sparkle? Yeah, I was like, I, what? And then I get done and I'm like, this thing nailed me. Yeah. Like, it absolutely nailed me. Yeah. And everyone who takes the test is like, this is ridiculous. And then they're done. They're like, oh. It just, it, it's, it's amazing. It's, I don't understand. It seems like voodoo or something. <laughs> well, it's not that. Black it's, magic. Actually, it's the hard work of a guy, Jerry uh, Jerome Wagner, who a uh, clinical psychologist at Loyola University in Chicago, gave 20 years of his life to developing this profile and, and field testing it. So we have found that it's an extremely accurate profile. But one of the other things that's really valuable about it, it's, it uses very common language. Mm. It doesn't use a lot of psychological stuff. It uses really simple, basic language we're all familiar with. And so folks can readily identify yeah. with what the profile is saying about who you are. You don't come out being labeled as an, a beaver or something, <laughs> yeah, some animal. Right. What? Yeah, yeah, you get a number. That's all right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Number's not bad. Right. The same response to beaver as to sparkle. Does. <laughs> <laughs> so. uh, and so what... A, um, could you guys tell us, before we get into more things tonight, yeah. tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you come to this? How did you find uh, find the Enneagram? And, and just what's your background? A little well, bit? I, you know, we are both pastors. We both pastored churches for 25 years. Um, we both planted churches. And uh, at some point along the way, about 1995, I decided God was leading me to do doctoral studies uh, to help the next generation of leaders. Um, I did that, <clears throat> and uh, when we started helping leaders, we came to the conclusion that um, they were very astute theologically, biblically. They had a lot of knowledge of God's Word, but the thing that seemed to be lacking was their understanding of themselves and how they went about doing relationships. And so talking with Jim, I we got to find something that helps people get clarity and we just i don't know i guess it was kind of on a whim i don't know we decided to go to jerome wagner's uh, thing on the enneagram and kind of learn about it and we got so this is really good and we came home we started using it and yeah it sparkled i mean it, <laughs> it, Full it, it, it really helped people have clarity pretty quickly because a lot of the folks you know don't have two years or three years to do week upon week upon week of kind of searching and counseling or coaching. They don't have the financial resources for that. And this was a really ready way to expedite persons coming to a clear understanding of who they were and who they are relationally. Mm. So is this, what was your PhD work on? It was in pastoral counseling and my dissertation was on narcissism. Okay. So, um, yeah, the, no wonder you know me so well. <laughs> <laughs> well, the Western culture fosters narcissists, and that's a growing phenomenon in our culture. 
and it's true among clergy. I did an empirical study between liberal Presbyterians and conservative Baptists and, and, and persons uh, training for full-time ministry, and both of them smoked the cultural mean on narcissism. They were way farther, more, far more narcissistic than the cultural mean. So, yeah, it's a phenomenon that happens. But that's a that's another whole podcast. Yeah. <laughs> and how did you guys meet? How did you Well, we were I was leading a community of pastors uh, in Chicago and uh, in terms of just working on areas of spiritual formation. Jim was in that group and uh, I invited him to join Crosspoint Ministry. We've been going at it for about 10 years now. Yeah, I met Rich in uh, 2003. Um, was in that two-year experience he was leading. And then a year or two after that, um, Rich invited me to join him at Crosspoint. So been, we've been doing this together uh, mm-hmm. 11 years plus, something like wow. that. Yeah. And you, where are you guys based out of now? We're around uh, Louisville, Kentucky. Um, we're, I'm in a little town of Madison, Indiana. Jim, Jim lives in Georgetown. I'm about an hour from Louisville. Jim's... About 15 Georgetown, minutes. Georgetown, Indiana. Okay. Yeah, both in Indiana. Yeah. And what do you spend most of your time doing these days? Well, we spend a lot of our time, well, we spend a lot of our time doing individual coaching with uh, couples or with uh, in, mostly Christian leaders, pastors, um, um, lay leaders in the church. Um, we do a lot of individual coaching. We lead a lot of retreats like we're doing this weekend. We do a lot of Enneagram retreats. Next week, we're doing a, a retreat on equipping leaders to use the Enneagram in their local congregation or in their counseling practice or in their spiritual formation mm. ministry. We're, we're doing that. Yeah. Last year, I think we had right at 125 days of either teaching or traveling to teach. Wow. So that's a, that's a big chunk of what we do. We... we prefer we, we do episodic events like we're doing tonight or tomorrow so the we do this but we also and do a lot of re- repetitive work where we'll do work of the staff uh, or like uh, we're working with x29 west with uh, there's 40 come together about once a quarter mm. and we have what we call a leader's journey and that's a 12 retreat experience over the space of three years We'll take a staff or a group through that. And so that has a real rhythm, mm-hmm. quarterly rhythm. There's a theological basis, theological, biblical element, uh, kind of a psychological element, and then uh, spiritual discipline element in those, each of those. So mm-hmm. we really like those. Yeah. yeah. And well, we, we like them all. Yeah, we're yeah. glad we're here. Yeah. Yeah. So. <laughs> we, like, we also do our, what we call our Soul Care Institute, where we have folks come, and that's uh, three times a year for a two-year period. And it's a two-and-a-half-day retreat where we're re- working with leaders who are engaged in soul care. And we teach them our approach to the soul from a biblical theological perspective but also from a psycho, a Christian psychology perspective. And uh, that's been, we love doing that because we have robust dialogue and conversation about really critical issues. You know, the soul is relational. Hmm. Uh, we, we talk about sin and psychological pathology. We talk about wounds and weaknesses of the human psyche. We talk about human development. It's just, we talk about the body. We do a whole cohort on the on the body so those kinds of experiences we 
Yeah. Uh, we well, just both love the nature doing. of change. Yeah. So yeah, those are, they're all fun. They yeah. all have their place. We enjoy them all. We're yeah. thankful for the opportunity at this stage in our lives. Rich is yeah, knocking I'm, on 70, aren't you? Getting yeah, up I am. There. Close, so, I'm closing in on it, man. <laughs> tell you. And, uh, I'm closing in on 64. Um, I never envisioned the opportunity to do this, so I'm very, very grateful. And we both have an, a real heart for the next generation. In some ways, it seems that, that you face challenges that we didn't face. Mm-hmm. And we, we pray for you. Um, and so anything we can help you with, give you a perspective of how to take care of your soul, yeah, how to make it the long haul with mm-hmm. you loving your wife, your wife loving you, your kids loving you, and you loving Jesus, um, then that's, that's a win. Yeah. And I know I've experienced that personally. Um, Rich and I meet on a basically a monthly, monthly yeah. basis via Skype. Yeah. And, uh, I know when I was a young man and I kind of got thrown into leadership, I wasn't discipled. I just had, a, I had a gift of talking and a gift of leadership and I just got thrown right in. Mm-hmm. And I, so I gather a crowd pretty fast. Mm-hmm. But when people get, I had no relationships. I had no true friendships. My yeah. closest friend passed away. Mm. And um, mm. and then I just said, it was ministry. And then my home was my castle and nobody came over for dinner. Nope. It was like when we got home, it was me, my wife, and we had one child at the time. Mm. And I remember someone saying to me, you know, you're like a leadership robot. Like mm. all you do is lead and preach and vision and that's all you do. And I remember looking at him going like, what do you want from me? Yeah. That's, this is all I know how to do. I yeah. don't, I'm not emotionally available to you, you yeah. know? And most of the time that people that were emotionally available, I was like, I don't want to be like that. So I want to get stuff done. Yeah. And, and, um, obviously through Acts 29 and through some getting some elders to disciple me, you know, I've, I've grown to understand who I am and how I've been gifted. And then, finding this book and finding the Enneagram and getting some coaching with you. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's no, it's no, we can just go ahead and do a little personal session right now. If yeah. we need to. Uh, I'm an eight. Yeah. Right. So powerful person. I am the powerful dominant personality. Do, do, and, and, and this is not, not a surprise to anybody no, who's listening. That knows me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And then, so to, this, I wasn't planning on doing this, but then explain the, so the dominant personality we get, but yep. then what's the wing? How, do, how does that come in? Well, the wing is just a style next to your dominant style that has a high score. And it's kind of like Jim often says, like creamer in my, in my coffee. So it's a style that will influence the eight. So if I'm an eight, I've either got style nine or style seven that's going to be influencing me. So, you know, if I understand those dynamics, which we'll talk about tonight and we talk about in our Enneagram trainings, uh, you get to understand what are the influencers that are shaping your particular personality. But I want to make a comment what you were saying, that for many, many leaders, we're educated, particularly in the church, to do a lot of thinking. And we, we tend to think that if we think right, we can be healthy people. The truth of the matter is we can think a lot of right stuff but if our emotional world is unknown to us or we can't manage it well or it's just not healthy, then that's going to really trouble us relationally 
because all relationships at some point activate what's going on within us emotionally. Hmm. And we've we've too often dismissed emotion, thinking they're unpredictable and unreliable, and you can't trust them. And in some sense, that's true. But nevertheless, our emotional world is a critical element of who we are. God's designed us as emotional people, and we need to understand that if we're going to love well, which I think Jesus talked about a little bit. Yeah, I love yeah. that. That's, that's a good point, because I think many of us, we, we kind of misinterpret scriptures that say, you know, take every thought captive and you yeah. renew yourself through the mind. Right. And we, so we prioritize the mind over the, the, over the affections. And, and yet Jesus said, what's the great commandment? But to love God and to love our neighbor as ourselves, the, the second commandment. The truth is, if Jesus wanted to, I think he could have said the great, the, here's the first and greatest. This is what summarizes the law and the prophets. Think about God. And think about your neighbor. But he doesn't say that. He says, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor. And loving in an Old Testament, New Testament framework really incorporates our affections, mm-hmm. our emotional world. So when we get in, start talking about emotions, yeah. um, we do feel out of control a lot of times. Even a guy like me that said before, I didn't have very many emotions. Well, mm-hmm. when you got me angry, I had an emotion, right? Yeah, and I, that's right. I, I would say I had like a passion and I had anger, which is probably the same thing. That's the only <laughs> two emotions I had. Well, yeah. Right? Only, maybe only two you were willing to, to own. Yeah, own. right. Or no. Right. But, you know, anger and anger is not a bad emotion. You know, anger is anger. and has its place. And sometimes we need to be angry about certain things <clears throat> but it's when anger is either um, so diminished we let people unnecessarily take advantage of us and we never respond or when anger is exaggerated and we have this knee-jerk furious response to maybe a simple critique or slight of somebody yeah. you know so it's it's the diminishment or the exaggeration that's the problem with anger not anger itself. Right. And I think for me, I think I had some, you know, feelings of shame and, and fear. Yeah. And instead of being able to be vulnerable in, in that and, and invite people in and mm-hmm. kind of live out of my authentic <clears throat> self, who, who God made me to be and be vulnerable at the foot of the cross. I, I was a wrestler growing up and you don't show weakness, right? Right. You expose other people's weaknesses. That's what you do. And so I would get angry. Right. Like I would fear being exposed, my weakness. And so mm-hmm. I would get angry. And so that came like out of my upbringing. And, yeah. you know, I, I got picked on as a kid. I was a little kid, I felt out of control until I found the sport of wrestling. And then I could actually had somebody my own size that I could, <laughs> that I could get after, you know. Yeah. And yeah. and so um, there was this fear of, you know, being taken advantage of, fear of exposure, whatever, fear of being ashamed. And, well, and often so. t- oftentimes our emotions are exaggerated when we feel vulnerable. Our, our emotions are exaggerated emotions, whether they be shame, which causes us typically to hide and go away, or fear, which can either have us just run away or fight kind of thing. I was or a we, fighter. We sure. freeze. Yeah, you're a, you're a fighter. Or, or and it, and we fight in the form of exaggerated, we fight in the form of exaggerated anger, but it's it's kind of having a willingness to 
face and address those aspects of how we protect ourselves. And the, and the Enneagram is going to, this profile that we're going to use back to that, it's going to expose which of these three inhibiting emotions, fear, shame, or guilt, are operative in us and how pronounced they might be. And then it's also going to give us some indicators on how we may use them as means of self-protection. In other words, it gives us some insights about the defenses we use and are, we employ relationally. So when we take this test and we find out what we are, yeah. most, most tests you take, and this is who I am, and you, can, you have two options, focus on your strengths or kind of try to work on your weaknesses. Is there, this, this seems to have another aspect, which is like we can actually change. Yes. Like we, we can yeah. uh, emotionally heal and emotionally, I don't know if it's mature. I don't know what the right the right word is. We can take on. So for me, I'm a high. I'm a high eight. Mm-hmm. And thank thank God, my wife is a high nine. Yes, I have a point seven nine, <laughs> and she's like ninety eight or something percent. Uh, and so I, now, let me just say, I'll, I'll be honest. She's she's learned more from me. She's taken more of my eight on. Yeah. Than I've probably taken her her nine on. But I. I want to do that. Yeah. I want to grow on that. How, how do we go about becoming, I guess the big term is becoming emotionally healthy. Mm. I think you, you, um, you make a good point about how you've, your wife has absorbed some of your gifting and it's kind of the way you go about things. There again, it's how, how open, how vulnerable, capable are you of absorbing her, her gifting? Mm. Because... Um, our woundedness or our weaknesses, like I might, I may feel like I'm not very emotional or emotionally attuned or whatever, that'd be a kind of a, a challenge or a weakness. We could describe it that way. Those things generally are the result of, of, of kind of relational hurts along the way. Hmm. Yes, we have a wiring. And yes, each of our giftings were kind of predisposed a certain way. But it doesn't have to be healthy, just or unhealthy, just because you're an eight doesn't mean you got to be a flaming angry person. Right. No. That when it like Richard, when that gets exaggerated, that's generally coming out of some relational issues, some relational wounds somewhere through life. Mm-hmm. Relational wounds. It's no surprise that they're healed relationally. Mm-hmm. So how do I call, how do I bring that challenge to the Lord relationally, and how do I open myself up to in healthy with healthy people relationally, so I can absorb what they've got? That's a great. That's yeah, a great I thought. think when we think about these kinds of deep transitional aspects that we long for in our lives, um, the, we have to understand the soul is a permeable reality. In other words. You know, the old saying, sticks and stones will break my bones, but names will never hurt me. Well, that's a lie. Right. Because we all know names hurt us. Why is that so? Because the truth of the matter is the soul is permeable and it can internalize the presence of other people. So when we're looking to become healthier persons, what we want to do is find healthy people to be around. Mm. And if we're around those people for a number of years, not just a couple weeks or not just a couple months, but we determine 
we're going to hang out with healthy people. Healthy people become a part of us. The soul is designed to take them in and internalize them. And in a deep way, uh, things can get shifted just by hanging around healthy people. Maybe this is part of the reason the New Testament talks about the church as the family of God. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of people didn't have a healthy family. Right. Um, drug abuse or just all, all, all sorts of problems. All yeah. sorts of problems. Alcohol abuse. Alcohol. And so they, they, they need a... They need a new family. They right. need to be reparented. Yeah, and that's that's not easy for those you know in the church because people can take a lot out of you, but that's the way people are going to learn and develop a character over 10, 20 years of hanging yeah. out in a healthy church. The the virtues of those people, the virtues of the moms and dads in that family, become become their their own. Yeah, and. It, it, all change requires intentionality as well. You know, yeah, we, if, if you want to change your soul and change the way, for instance, you do relating, train, change an emotional aspect of you, you've got to say to yourself, I'm going to make some commitment. I'm going to intentionally do some things. So I can intentionally, for instance, show up at a healthy church, yeah. for instance. Or I have, I have to have an intentional strategy that when I'm angry or I'm feeling that emotion start to cook in me, I have to have an intentional strategy by in terms of what I'm going to think and how I'm going to behave. And I can't decide that strategy in the moment. I have to have that strategy before that emotion gets cooking within me. That's good. So I think what we say sometimes at Sacred City from this principle is we've been deformed in community and we have to be reformed Correct. in community. And this leads us to this next piece is, um, I, I quote this a lot. Someone asked Tim Keller one time, what one piece of advice would you give this generation? And he says, you're the, you're the generation who's most afraid of real community because it limits your freedom and choice. Yes. And he says, get over your fear. And, mm-hmm. and, and he just says, get, join a church, get over your fear. Yes. But, that is a lot easier said than done. Yes, it is. For this generation who, who lacks, they've been hurt by community or, or by families. They've been, grew up in broken families, mm-hmm. so they just don't trust anyone. Well, that's the issue. The currency of relationships is trust. If you've grown up in a family system in which the primary persons prove to be unreliable, you've figured out how to wait a, a way to survive that. If you show up at a healthy family and the, that family has an, an emotional intimacy and closeness, that's frankly going to scare the liver out of you yeah. because that seems so unfamiliar and it makes us feel vulnerable. Now we get anxious. And when we get anxious, what we do is we have strategies for pushing people away or avoiding people. And we've got to recognize that that's what's going on in me. And I have to be intentional to face that anxiety and try to lean towards being vulnerable. It's helpful to be patient with yourself a bit as well, because you're not going to fix that kind of issue in a matter of six or eight months. Give yourself three to five years. And if you're consistently doing intentional things with healthy people over a period of three to five years, your soul is going to make a deep shift. I know it's been frustrating for me as a pastor who's experienced this because yeah. I've grown in this and more emotionally aware and more, more emotionally healthy. 
and I was I'm on mission to people at, at my gym, and a young lady said to me, she's like, I'm really wanting to come to your church, but I'm I'm afraid if I come and then if I stop showing up, somebody's going to ask me where I was. Mm-hmm. And to me, it was like, I, I looked at her, I go, when you don't show up for the gym, does anybody say does somebody say where were you yesterday? She's like, yeah. I'm like, well, why would it be any different in getting healthy? in your soul than getting healthy in your body. Yeah. Like we are, this generation is afraid of making a commitment, but it seems like if they can't get over that hurdle, they can't change. Well, there's sometimes that we don't change until the pain of staying where we are is greater than the pain of taking some risks. Mm. And, and because we are relationally designed at our core, created in the image of a relational God, because we're relationally designed, we're, we kind of count on the fact that that relational voice and need is just going to keep pressing in on people. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and there's people still try to have friendships. They still try in their own way because there's, there's something deep inside wanting, wanting connection. Yeah, we're designed for connection. Neurologically, the brain is designed for connecting for attaching but facebook has hijacked that so <laughs> well our, our actually our electronic gadgets have hijacked it and there's research coming out on how dangerous these electronic gadgets are particularly for our children mm-hmm. because they wire the brain in terms of an expectation relationally um uh, Turkle writes this book, Reclaiming Conversation in a Digital Age. And I've been look, re-looking at what she's written in that book. And she talks about how persons that are inordinately preoccupied with their iPhone or their, some, their iPad find that actual human engagement is anxiety-provoking. Because in real human engagement, in conversation, mm. for instance, you you can't, you know, persons may just say something that's kind of a little weird or strange, or there may be a long pause. And oftentimes those kind of... Or re- a facial expression. Or a facial expression. Or you just bore me. Yeah. Like if, or you, you well, know, that's like, one of the key things. Yeah, some, some conversations are just boring. Yeah. And people, people get anxious yeah. about that and they can't tolerate. So they go to their gadgets to communicate as, as a means of reducing anxiety. Try, try, through controlling. It's a, it's a controlling deal. Yeah. When I can't, to the extent that trust is hard, I, I have to control some way. Yeah. I'm either passive or aggressive, yeah. but I find a way to control a situation. And that that's kind of the whole uh, medium of social media is controlling my image, this false image yeah, yeah. that I have, a curated self on Instagram. Of course. Right. Yeah. And I, and, and I, so I become my image. Yeah. What is that? Well, that's that. That's what we're practicing. You know, <laughs> we, be, we if we practice being an image, we'll start drinking our own Kool Aid, and that's what we who we think we are. When in fact, we all know we're more messy than our images, mm. and we got to be able to tolerate that within ourselves. If and if we can't tolerate it within ourselves, we're surely not going to tolerate it in anybody else. Yeah. It'll make us anxious, and so we, we just avoid. Then we avoid the very thing that God's designed us for most significantly, and that's communion and connection. And the like Jim just said it: the human soul never relinquishes that longing. We're wired and designed to be connected, and if we're not, if we're isolated, if we're alienated. 
then the human psyche, the human soul cannot end up in a healthy place. It's not possible. Yeah, and I think we're seeing that in our culture as more and more people, and young people specifically, are emotionally unable to handle the, the real world. Yes. And we've even got things where, you know, well, it's kind of a joke, but it's real. And universities, like trigger warnings and like, you mm-hmm. can't say those words around me. I can't mm-hmm. emotionally handle yeah. somebody disagreeing with me. Yeah, yeah. So I have very fragile fragile ego structures, persons who are very fragile, that we often talk about there's two kinds of people in the world. There's receptive people and there's reactive people. And what we're finding in in our culture is a level of reactivity that's unprecedented. It's like people can't even tolerate listening to a, an opposing point of view. Well, you know, we all we're going to have opposing points of view, mm-hmm. and one of the signs of we think a mature human being, a mature person, a mature Christian, is the capacity to listen and to receive. It's fundamental to our own growth and maturation as a person that we can receive information. We can receive the counselor wisdom of another person. We can receive the the criti- critique or advice, Mm. or uh, admonition of another person. I mean, I I would completely agree with that. I think that's, I think our culture and the news cycle and everything kind of primes us to be reactive. Yeah. And we even like, you don't care about it unless you react, you know, Mm -hmm. in some way. You can't take it in and think about it and mull it over. Um, You have to be a reactor. Mm. And I like that. That's a sign of health to be able to receive it Take it in, acknowledge mm. it, but maybe disagree with it and not yeah. react. So how do I, again, how do I get to that spot? I even find in my own self a tendency to be reactive. Yeah. Right? How do I become more receptive? Slow down. Oh, jeez. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> well, really, can I slow down? Can I say to myself, I'm just going to take this in. I'm going to slow down my response. Th- think of that in terms of when marital, re- just a marital relationship, and we we kind of redo the same old argument, and we get the, the volume increases. Well, what if we just said we're 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 making a commitment to slow down our dialogue, and and maybe what we do is we just suspend it for a day or two, and then then maybe we come back when we have a bit of a different perspective. But oftentimes our reactivity is driven by our emotional world, sometimes that we don't know about, other times that we do. But we need to slow, just slow down my response and let me reflect on what I'm hearing and then make a measured response in return. A lot of times there's reactivity because there is this franticness of life. and that, but, but a lot of that franticness is because because people are anxious. Hmm. They just they find it hard to just be with themselves. They're just there's a lot of anxiety and anxiety will make you re, will make you react. Mm. Yeah. And I think for a, a believer it's uh it's really good news of you know peace. I leave with you my peace I give unto you not as the world giveth. Yeah. Give I unto you. <clears throat> There's a sense of when you know when Jesus fed the multitude, you know, um, 
he basically said to the disciples, we're done, boys. We're, and Mark says he just he left and went to be alone to pray. Um, and in the history of the Christian church, there was there's always been this discipline of getting alone for prayer, to be quiet. We get guys like Daniel Siegel, who's a, a brilliant uh, neuropsychiatrist, and he's writing these books on mindfulness, which is the buzzword. Well, what is he saying? He's saying, well, if you take eight to nine minutes a day and just be still and quiet your mind, you're going to end up a more centered, healthy person. That's what Jesus was doing. Yeah, He was getting away from the fray. He was quieting his heart. He was simply meditating and reflecting on his father and his relationship with his father. And that's how he carried out his ministry. So how do, how do we become more receptive? We become more receptive by, Jim saying, taking space, taking time just to be with myself, to be quiet, to be still. And if I practice that 10 minutes a day, it's going to make a big difference in three to five years. Yeah, I don't think most people don't believe you. I know they don't. <laughs> I, I know for <laughs> That's me. That's why we harp on this. Yeah, right. <laughs> I, I, knew, I just, I don't have time yeah. to, to do that. And yeah. my wife, I think I told you this, one of the last, I, I put a solitude day in my schedule. Right. One day, every six weeks, every time it comes up, there's no way I can do it. I'm not going to do it. And then I'm like, fine, I'll go do it. And I came home from my solitude day where it's me by myself. Maybe I'll have a book, a journal, uh, whatever. And my wife says, she says, every time you come, she's like, I know you're an extrovert because every time you get in a group, you know, you come alive. But every time you come back from a solitude day, you completely convince me that you're an introvert mm. because you're a different person when you come home. Mm. Emotionally, I am, I can play with the kids. I, I'm there. I'm present. I'm not right. processing all this stuff in my mind. And, and I just feel more alive. I feel more free. Mm -hmm. I feel like I'm not under pressure to save the world at, yeah. at the moment. Yeah. And so, you know, when she said that to me, it was kind of a moment of clarity of like, you know, okay, I do need this and I mm -hmm. have to make time for this. And it actually does, you know, it helps me be recept a receptive yeah. person. Yeah. It, it, it kind of centers around what do I, what do I, what do I desire? Jesus asked the blind man, what do you want? in Luke 18. What, what is it you want? And the blind man says he wants to see. Jesus, I think, poses that question to us as well. What is it we want? And most persons are, are interested or longing for and wanting kind of a deep relationship with someone somehow. And one of the ways towards being able to enter into a relationship that's meaningful is that if I'm centered within myself and I can show up and be present to other people and not have to talk or not get lost and hide away, but I can be present and just, I can engage in appropriate ways. How can that happen? It can happen by my being in community, but also yeah. by my spending time, 10 minutes a day, just quiet, just still centering my soul. It will make a difference. Yeah, the quote comes to mind. I can't remember who said it, but like all of our problems stem from the reality that we can't be alone with ourselves in an empty room. Mm, like yeah. how many, you know, 
Yeah. That's we have to have our phone going. We have to have something yeah. going at all times. And we just you see it in a waiting room. You see it at yeah. a stoplight. You see it nonstop. We're we want to be consistently we're, we're, entertained. Or there's something. this sense of we're wired up. We, we we're trying to connect. But what's happening, we're connecting to the superfluous. And Richard Rohr speaks about how the vast majority of people live on the circumference of their soul. If you want to move from the circumference of your soul to the center of your soul, it's going to take being less frantic, as Jim said. And that happens by my taking some time to be still and quiet. It moves me to the center. And oftentimes it will provoke some anxiety. Most persons who start this journey of being more quiet um, or tr practicing being quiet find that they're really anxious. Well, they, they need to kind of keep going with the practice because eventually you'll drop down beneath that anxiety and you'll start finding a calmness of heart that actually helps mitigate and kind of dissolve that anxiety over time. For the believer, if I can be with myself, I'm going to be with the Spirit, mm. Holy Spirit, because that's where he's living. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And if I'm living avoiding myself, essentially my communion with God will be really diminished because God wants communion with me. And if I can't tolerate being with me, I'm the one that's avoiding God, not God. God's yeah. God's right here. He's within me. That's good. Yeah. So we are running out of time. I have a lot more questions I'd like to ask, but we're running out of time tonight. We want to get some food before this thing starts. Yeah. Uh, pick up the book, The Relational Soul, Moving from False Self to Deep Connection. I think we've got some important things. You want to mature emotionally and relationally. Yep. You've got to make a commitment. You've got to be a part of a church. You've got to yep. join, join a community. Yep. You've got to, and, you, and one big piece is we've got to put our cell phone down and we've got to, we've got to be alone with ourselves. Yeah, you got to spend time with yourself. You, if, if you're going to live avoiding yourself, you're going to live on the peripheral of your periphery of your soul, and you're going to have sh a shallow experience relationally. Yeah, and that's the downside. You just what we relationally long for, we just it's out of reach. Mm. Yeah, and for those who, I think one thing we don't want to be alone with ourselves because we don't like ourselves. When we get to get alone, we we like our curated self. Yeah, like the false self. But we don't really like who we are. And it's it's the real dirty, messy, broken yeah. Justin who Jesus died for. And loves. And loves. Yeah. And my real true life is hidden in Christ, in God. It's in there. It's not on Facebook or on Instagram. That's exactly right. And that's freeing. So uh, Richard and James, thank you guys for being yeah. with us today. Thank you. And it's we look, I look forward to, be to with this you. weekend. Yeah, so, thank you. Thank you. Thanks a lot.